This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. That's a clip from Misha Bruger-Gossman's new album, I've Got a Crush on You. With contemporary songs by Canadian artists Joni Mitchell, Ron Sexsmith, and Leslie Feist, it's a departure for the star soprano. She joins us to talk about it. When a mistake occurs in a hospital, it's not the end. It's really just the beginning, in many ways, of the story that I'm telling. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, best known as CNN's chief medical correspondent and a practicing neurosurgeon, has added the title novelist to his name. I'll talk to him about Monday Mornings, his new book about the secret meetings where doctors come clean about their mistakes. Take a load up. And there was sad news on Thursday with the passing of Levon Helm, the legendary drummer and singer from the band. We'll take a look back at his life and hear some of the songs he wrote and sang that are now part of rock and roll history. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Unfortunately, Levon Helm wasn't the only Zoomer icon that we lost last week. Broadcast legend Dick Clark passed away Wednesday at the age of 82 following a massive heart attack. He was known as America's oldest teenager because of his boyish good looks and charm. He'll be remembered for his annual New Year's countdown in New York's Times Square and for his role as the host and producer of American Bandstand, which began in 1957 and helped bring cultural change to America. Last Thursday marked Yom HaShoah, or Holocaust Remembrance Day, which honors the six million Jews murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. In Israel, where it's an official holiday, a memorial siren brought the entire country to a standstill. It's observed by Jews throughout the world. In Poland, thousands of people participated in the March of the Living, a track from Auschwitz to Birkenau, the two main parts of the notorious Nazi concentration camp. Burma's pro-democracy opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi is set to leave her home country for the first time in 24 years. The 66-year-old has refused to leave Burma for the past two decades for fear she wouldn't be allowed back into the country. Now she's expected to pay visits to both Norway and the United Kingdom this summer. After spending years in house arrest, she was officially elected to the Burmese parliament earlier this month. And finally, a Zoomer baseball player set a new world record this week. 49-year-old pitcher Jamie Moyer of the Colorado Rockies became the oldest pitcher to win a Major League Baseball game when the Rockies defeated the San Diego Padres 5-3 on Tuesday night. Those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. 
You probably know him as CNN's chief medical correspondent. But Dr. Sanjay Gupta is also a practicing brain surgeon, and for 20 years he's taken part in secret meetings where doctors dissect their medical mistakes. That's the subject of his new novel, Monday Mornings. I sat down with him when he was in town recently. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Libby. I have to say, I'm a fan, and there's something about you I've always been wondering about, Uh because the people that I know that are surgeons are completely consumed by it. People who have TV careers at your level are completely consumed by it. So how do you manage to actually practice both, let alone uh, write a novel? How do you manage that? Well, I think, you know, you you become consumed with the task that you have at hand. So for me, you know, when I'm in the hospital... um, I am consumed by that. That is my life at that time. But I think, you know, a lot of surgeons, uh, you know, in academics especially, they do a lot of clinical work, but then they have, you know, maybe they're in the laboratory or they're doing clinical papers or they're writing books or something on the side. So for me, you know, over the last, um, I guess, decade now, my other thing has been, you know, doing this work as a reporter, you know, a medical reporter. And I think the the writing, um, you know, of of books and uh, for the websites and stuff like that, that was sort of where I began. Do you have special weeks where you see patients, or how do you, you mean how, scheduling? How does that work? No, you know, I have a very specific schedule. So just about um, every Monday I operate. Uh, every Thursday uh, I see patients in the office. And Fridays, uh, every other Friday I operate as well. So it's about two and a half days a week. So it's, you know, it's a very, very specific schedule. It stays busy, um, but, I, you know, I, I don't let a lot of time go wasted. So the title of the book, Monday Mornings, is uh, because of these meetings. These meetings that I'm talking about are called morbidity and mortality, M&M. And so Monday mornings originally was a little bit of a play on words. But what I really wanted to convey in the title was that uh, when a mistake occurs in a hospital, it's not the end. It's really just the beginning in many ways of the story that I'm telling. Why did you decide to tackle these themes in a novel? It's interesting. Um, Originally, when I started thinking about these meetings that I've been attending for, for almost 20 years now, um, these closed-door meetings, these sort of somewhat secretive gatherings where, where doctors would hold each other accountable uh, because they would talk about their mistakes. I, you know, I, I kept diligent notes like most people did because, you know, the whole point of these meetings was to learn. So you'd learn from uh, someone's presentation of what happened and, and what could be done to prevent it from happening again. And I realized, I think, about 10 years ago that there was – just some incredible stories here. Originally, when I was going to write it, it was going to be nonfiction. You know, it was going to be sort of not so much about avoidance of mistakes in hospitals. Though there have been great books written on that, and I report on that topic a lot as a journalist. This was more what happens after a mistake occurs. You know, what happens in a hospital? What happens to the doctors? How does that all sort of take place? And and as I started to get into it a little bit, I realized that fiction was probably a better vehicle because in order to really tell stories, you know, it wasn't about holding particular doctors or hospitals or institutions, you know, implicating them. It was more about being able to really show people what happens here. That's a whole big discussion in the world of medicine about whether doctors can admit to mistakes. Sometimes they want to and their lawyers don't let them. Yeah. But often they found that if they do admit mistakes and, and apologize to patients, that that can give the patients, the victims of the mistake, some closure as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very good point, uh, Libby. And I think um, people have believed that for some time, but I think there's actual studies now to back up what you just said. There's been campaigns. There's one called the Sorry Works campaign, uh, which was started around that very premise, uh, this idea that ultimately what a patient wants is some acknowledgement of their grief over a medical error. And if they are suddenly you know closed off 
from their doctors, closed off from the medical establishment, it's so disrespectful and inhumane to them that it makes the situation so much worse. I think most doctors would like to be able to just say, look, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry what happened. You know, I think of my own mom. I think of my own child. You know, you know so I, I feel terrible about what happened. And I think that that you know, goes a long way. And I think it's actually the more natural state of things. I think uh, and not being able to, to communicate, not being able to say you're sorry is, is, is an artificial one. The bottom line is if, if I make a mistake, nobody's going to die. But if you make a mistake, somebody might die. Are doctors adequately trained to handle that? Most mistakes are not leading to loss of life. I mean, a wound infection after a, an operation would be something that might get, uh, you know, presented at one of these gatherings. Um, you know, someone uh, not checking a blood test might get presented at one of these gatherings. No one died. Patient may not even know about it. But the point is that we want to move science and medicine forward. Uh, something bad could have happened. Let's not let this happen again. I think it's just a human thing, you know, uh, as to how, how honest and transparent you are about your own mistakes, uh, how likely you are not to blame somebody else for your mistakes, how, uh, how defensive you get if suddenly confronted with one of your mistakes. And I think doctors in, in, in that case are, are no different than any other sector of our society. Some are going to be much better at it than others. But, you know, in these meetings for 20 years, I saw people who got very defensive. I saw people who would blame others. I saw people who were simply reckless and showed no remorse. And it's a terrible thing to see when you see that sort of thing. But that's not uniquely medical. What do you hope people take away from the book? Hopefully it's an engaging um, read that, you know, uh, takes people inside a place of medicine that they didn't know existed. Uh, certainly uh, very few have even ever heard about. So I hope it tells the stories of, of what happens to doctors and hospitals uh, under some of the most extreme circumstances. Um, I, I've been fascinated with that, and I think that there's a lot of lessons for other parts of our society as well, maybe even starting with just having a meeting. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much Thanks for so joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. The book is Monday Mornings by Dr. Sanjay Gupta. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. That's superstar Canadian soprano Misha Bruger Gossman on her new album, I've Got a Crush on You. She stopped by our studios earlier this week, and in just a moment, you'll hear our conversation. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Well, she is one of our favorite people here at Zoomer Radio. Most of us know Misha Bruger Gossman as a world-renowned Juno Award-winning soprano who sings classical repertoire. Well, now she's taking a very different direction with her new recording, I've Got a Crush on You. It features Misha's takes on songs by the likes of Ron Sexsmith and Joni Mitchell and Feist, along with some hymns and even a touch of reggae. Misha! <laughs> So good to see you. Oh my goodness, the reggae. Oh, I tell you, I'm completely unqualified, but I went there. I just thought, why not? <laughs> the whole album is kind of like a, why not? But, you know, it's, you know, I know your question is, how did you come to choose the song? On the album? <laughs> Are you bored of that question? No, no, because it's a very good question. It's a valid question. And I, 
had been singing this repertoire, I mean, maybe not the reggae, for as long as, uh, you know, I can remember. And, of course, I grew up in Fredericton and Brunswick Street United Baptist Church, so that explains the hymns. And and uh, my first album on CBC Records had the, the Gershwin tunes featured on this album. And then the Defia, the Manuel Defia, the Spanish Lullaby, is on my last album with Deutsche Gramophone. And it's kind of all just been reinterpreted with this group of incredible musicians on this album. You know, the Canadian songbooks on there because I, I love Ron Sexsmith. I know Ron and I know Leslie Feist. And, and of course, I had inducted one of Joni's songs into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. So all of those make sense. In terms of a genre, we all know you as, as a classical singer. Yeah. And this seems like a very big, dramatic departure. It's funny. It doesn't feel odd just because, you know, I make music in exactly the same way. The voice sounds very different, I'll admit that. In my opinion, your technique as a classical musician is meant to make you ultimately flexible, and I feel like um, good music is good music, and the bones of a tune can be dressed up in as many costumes as variety allows if the bones are good. Is the whole thing about being perceived as a singer in a certain genre, is it too restrictive uh, no, because there's no shortage of repertoire for me to sing in the classical domain. And I will continue to explore that genre of music because I do feel like the the repertoire that expresses me best. And of course, what my voice and the fullest expression and potential of my voice is, is in classical music. Oh, good. We're glad to hear oh. that you're not <laughs> abandoning it. <laughs> no, I, I mean, as a matter of fact, like there's kind mm-hmm. of a, you know, I had this time off. Marcus and I, my husband, were pregnant with twins, and we lost our twins at the end of the summer. But by then, I'd already cleared my calendar to become a parent, uh, and that didn't work out. And so after we took our time, uh, which was a luxury to have, was to have this time to really go through the process of grieving, which is ongoing. But, you know, once the dust had kind of cleared and and settled... I just called the Seahorse Tavern down in Halifax and asked them if, you know, they were interested in having me <laughs> go sing a concert. And they said yes. And <laughs> Oddly, <laughs> they, said, they said yes. You, you, you've given us a, a, a lot of information there. You've had some very tough things happen to you yeah. in the last few years. You lost your, your babies. And before that, you had a brush with death, a dissected yeah. aorta. How much does that have to do with this particular repertoire? Well, you know, I think I get to a point where I just want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I pushed forward with this album as the doors opened. One concert in the Maritimes turned into five because things sold so quickly. So we were in Halifax and in Fredericton, and then we thought, let's set up a few mics and maybe we can make an album out of it. I don't know if the album is an extension of the times and variety that has been my life, but it has been like this existence of extremes. You know, it's like I have, yeah, there's been extreme loss and brushes with death, but there's also been extreme joy. You know, my husband and I have a a wonderful relationship and the strengthening the ties with our family and, you know, uh, realizing that, it isn't your career at the end of your life that is going to comfort you or be there for you. It's, you know, the people that are around you. And that the only true wealth 
is an abundance of free time, that no other wealth uh, exists that has any real meaning. And I just wanted to take the free time that, yes, out of tragedy had been blessed to me and use it in a way that would, um, you know, bring about a result that I could, uh, you know, be proud of. And, you know, the result, you know, is the album and who knows what the future holds. But I just wanted to go somewhere I'd never been before. Do you have a favorite piece on this album? I'm going to say Embrace Will You because it goes into the reggae and you mentioned that. Embrace me, my sweet embrace will you. I've Got a Crush on You is available in record stores and online through iTunes. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. That's the unique voice of Levon Helm, drummer and singer for the band. He died this week at the age of 71. Coming up, we look back at his life and some of the beautiful music he wrote and sang. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. The music industry is mourning the loss of Zoomer icon Levon Helm, the drummer and vocalist from the band. He passed away Thursday at the age of 71. Earlier in the week, his wife and daughter had posted a note on his website stating that he was in the final stages of throat cancer, which he was diagnosed with in 1998. 
He was the only member of the band who wasn't Canadian. Born and raised in Arkansas, that's where he hooked up with fellow musician Ronnie Hawkins. Helm and Hawkins moved to Canada, where they recruited more members for their band, Robbie Robertson, Richard Manuel, Garth Hudson, and Rick Danko. They became Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. After a successful period in the mid-60s, the Hawks split away from Ronnie Hawkins and became the backup group for Bob Dylan, accompanying him on his 1965 and 1966 tours. However, those concerts were very tumultuous, and afterwards, Levon Helm took a break from the business. In 1968, he reunited with his old bandmates, and they formed a new group simply titled The Band. They released their first album, Music from the Big Pink, which was a landmark containing famous songs like The Wait. That album was quickly followed by their self-titled Brown album, one often considered their masterpiece. The band continued touring and releasing albums until 1976 when, exhausted from life on the road, they decided to call it quits with one last performance, The Last Waltz. The concert was famously documented by Martin Scorsese. However, Lee Von Helm was not happy with the results. In his memoir, This Wheels on Fire, he said that Scorsese and Robbie Robertson tried to make Robertson look like the leading man, while the rest of the band were just supporting players. This, on top of disputes over songwriting credits, caused a falling out between Helm and Robertson. In fact, when the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, Helm did not attend. However... It seems that this rift was patched up just days before his death when Robertson went to visit him in his New York City hospital room. Today we honor the life of Levon Helm, the man with the beautiful, soulful voice who sang some of the most iconic songs of the 20th century. That brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Next week, our guest will be Bruce Coburn. He's the subject of a new Vision TV documentary called Pacing the Cage. We'll see you then. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.